Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 252nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's cracking cold foils while you're warming by the fire. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Mumpin on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what is on the agenda this week? Capping off a absolutely insane 2020. Yeah, uh, in more ways than one. Uh, this week, we uh, this is our review week. Uh, segment one, our metagame week in review. We'll look at the uh, pioneer and modern events from recent history. Segment two, our top paper movers review. We'll look at the cards in paper that have moved the most this past week, followed by our top MTGO movers review. Then we will review our cards to watch, where James and I will run through some stuff we like in the future. And finally, segment four, our 2020 in review, where we spent a lot of time gathering a bunch of data to tell you all that we are decent at our jobs. Um, And we will go through that at the end of the show. But let's start at the start of the show with the Pioneer Challenge from just uh, pretty recently. And it looks like some uh, some mono decks taking the top here. Mono red aggro followed by mono black aggro in the top two slots of this Pioneer Challenge. Yeah, this is a Pioneer top eight that is largely decks we've seen quite a lot of. The uh, mono red uh, and mono black aggro have been around more or less since the beginning. We've got two uh, entries from black white auras, which has been a persistent top eight contender in third and fifth. Sultai control in fourth, running Uros and Shark Typhoons and the like. And uh, probably the most interesting deck this week is a bit of a throwback to earlier in the history of Pioneer. Um, in sixth place, we have Jeskai and Soul. This is uh, an Ensoul artifact deck that leverages Ghostfire Blade and Springleaf Drum, uh, Shrapnel Blast, Ornithopters, Ginger Brutes, Hope of Giraper, and uh, Toolcraft Exemplar is, I guess, the, the White Splash. And they also get access to Lurus uh, out of the sideboard and Glass Casket out of Throne of Eldraine um, to justify dipping into white, hmm. um, which is, I think, probably primarily done for all that glitters. The, a card that we've seen in the Colossus Hammer decks over in Modern uh, also popping up here uh, because it gives you uh, plus one, plus one for each creature and, and or enchantment you control to whatever you slap it onto. So it's basically backup like duplicate copies of Ensoul Artifact because you're going to have enough artifacts uh, on the table that it's going to approximate making your creature a 4-4 or 5-5 or 6-6. Yeah, and those types of decks are just looking for 
as many reasonable versions of that effect they can get, and a bad one is better than no option. Yeah. Then capping out the top eight, we've got Siltai Control again in seventh, and then Jeskai Yorion. So still looking like a reasonably healthy format. Um, if anything's uh, oppressive across this and modern, it's the ever-presence of Uro. But... I- uh, I like those uh, Stone Coil Serpents in the Jeskai and Soul deck, and they slipped underneath my radar kind of when Throne of Drain first came out, and then people were talking about them afterwards, and I realized, like, oh yeah, this card's actually pretty solid and useful in a variety of strategies. It's been pretty quiet so far, but certainly seems like it is gathering... I shouldn't say gathering steam. Uh, I'm not surprised to see it here, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it more in the future. Well, I mean, it's actually top-aided in both Pioneer and Modern pretty much all year long in a variety of lists. It just kind of comes and goes depending on what the what the week looks like. If Hardened Scales is having a good week, it might pop up there. We've seen it in some uh, creature combo builds in Modern as well. And it's just good because there's so much, so much of the removal and some of the Planeswalkers are multicolored, so... You can really put people on the back foot. It's also in almost 5,000 decks on EDH Rex since it was released, so pretty reasonable stats over in Commander as well. It's a really versatile card because you can play it as a 1-mana one 1-1 one who is an artifact that will benefit from artifact synergies and also plus 1, plus 1 counter synergies, but it's an artifact creature, so it also interacts with cards that care about artifact count like it just has lots of little features that seem to matter to various strategies and if you manage to hit like two of those strategies intersecting the card is really useful so uh i mean the extended art foils are 28 dollars um so there's obviously some uh some demand here yeah one of, one of my picks early on in the eldrian cycle now, over in uh, the Modern Champs Qualifier, uh, sorry, I guess Modern Challenge uh, from December 28th, update the sheet here, um, we've got a meme deck that has managed to go back-to-back first-place finishes in the Modern Challenge two out of the last three weeks we've looked at it, talking about the Paladin Hammer deck that leverages Pure Steel Paladin, Stoneforge Mystic, and Colossus Hammer. Uh, alongside Sigarda's aid to put together a relatively quick aggro combo uh, attack scheme. Uh, they've also got Ink Moth Nexus, so you can get a Colossus Hammer on your Nexus and swing for 10 poison counters and put the game uh, to sleep right away. Uh, nasty, nasty deck that I think a lot of people would have assumed at first glance might have been a, a one-off or you know just a, a, a meme deck that was going to fade into oblivion, but it looks pretty serious right now. Uh, yeah, we talked about this before, and uh, was it last week? Seth Saffron Olive said something to the effect of like, every, "It's a meme deck until it's not," and it is not. Um, and you know, it has some goofy cards, but they start to work, and this is what you get. I mean, as we get closer to paper coming back, you know, mid late summer, there'll probably start to be some smaller tournaments in some some areas of the world. I could definitely see some pressure being put on Pure Steel Paladin and probably the sexy-looking Stoneforge Mystic Foil Box Toppers from VIP uh, packs for Double Masters. Colossus Hammer Foils are probably going to keep floating uh, higher and higher. Sigarda's Aid will will get pushed. Those the Ink Moth Nexus of Choice might be the one from the the Secret Layer Tattoo set. Um, And however many of those are out there, that's all there is. So worth keeping an eye on the supply of those and it's also worth noting that this is also yet another Luris of the dream den deck so the foil extended arts of Luris uh under additional pressure from from this build as well 
Yeah, there's a lot of Ink Moth Nexuses at this point, and uh, there was a long time ago where that was a, a premium card and a juicy spec, and it's kind of... There's enough out there now that I'm not sure I'd have to really spend some time going through and looking at it to figure out where the ang where if it existed the angle was on those. I think the tattoo ones are interesting. I don't know how compelling those are now, for the average player. Now zooming out on the rest of this modern top eight, probably the most notable thing: none of these decks in, the, in anything like these existing configurations existed a year ago. These are all basically new strategies. So you got Paladin Hammer. Ad nauseum certainly existed and has always been floating around on the you know fringes of modern, but has never been as you know putting up as consistent results as it is right now in response to this particular meta. We have it finishing second and sixth here, um, notably running three Thassa's Oracle in, in both builds. Third, fourth, and fifth are all four color Omnath Uro, and then you got black red. Uh, Shadow, Scourge of the Sky, Claves, and Eighth, and arguably, you know, Death Shadow has been around for ages, but this incarnation with Scourge of the Sky, Claves is new as of Zendikar Rising, and because it's black-red has a, a different configuration than prior Death Shadow builds, which tended to be Grixis for a while, then they were Jund, then they were back to Grixis, and now we're on to black-red. Um, but despite all of that, that's not even the most interesting build here. The, the Definitely the most interesting deck here is in seventh place, we've got Blue Black Rogue Control. This is brand new to me. Four Soaring Thought Thief. Thought thief. Uh, and this is a card whose foils took off hard recently on the back of this deck. Uh, I noticed various Discord members trying to unload them, both within and outside the Discord. Um, there's probably also some something to be said for you know, us getting more rogues as we head into the D&D set that might give the rogue-related cards a, a further boost later in the year. But for now, Soaring Th Thought Thief and Thieves Guild Enforcer, both under pressure as the only eight creatures in the deck. And then it's just a pile of blue-black control cards. Uh, Sorcerers and Instance, Archmage's Charms, Cling to Dust, Deprive, Drown in the Lock, very versatile card, Fatal Push, Spell Snare, Thought Scours, Thought Seizes, Mishra's Bobbles, and then Bitter Blossom is where things get cute. You get three Bitter Blossoms, they're cranking out rogues, and every time a rogue comes into play, your opponent mills two cards. Uh, hmm. And then the Thought Thief is giving your rogues plus one plus zero, so it makes your Bitter Blossoms two one flyers. That's pretty uh, savage. Um, I, I th yeah, I mean, th this is a cool deck for sure. Uh, you know, seeing Bitter Blossom come back in a non-fairy shell is, is fun, um, for a card that people were excited about, uh, and were worried about what unbounding it would mean, but, uh, ultimately didn't do too much. This is fairies incarnate. At this point, it's kind of fun to talk about fairies as sort of this iconic magic deck. And I wouldn't be surprised if the people listening to this cast weren't playing when fairies was a deck. I think I think you're selling ad nauseum a little short when you say that it hasn't done uh, this well in the past. It was a basically the top modern deck, the top combo deck in modern on and off for a while. Um, it was very consistent, but it was also not necessarily a time when combo was really excellent. Even still, so you're I mean the Omnaths is all new. The Paladin version of Pure Soul Paladin is new. Uh, the Rogue Control sure didn't exist. Um, so some interesting stuff out there. Uh, people are really going to have to update their paper binders when they make it back to the <laughs> Yeah, if you, if you have a, a modern trade binder from two years ago that's just been sitting around in your closet, you're probably going to find a lot of it strongly devalued. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't get too attached to the original price points of your Termagoyce. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it, for sure. And what's really funny is the people who haven't updated their stuff at all, and like not even a trade binder, but just like a staples binder that they need to play with. You know, cards they need to play with. So you have like my buddy who hasn't played Magic since you know whatever March, and he doesn't really trade a lot, but he keeps cards around to use. And he's going to go back to the store in whatever, six months and realize that every single card in that binder is outdated at this point. And be like, oh, <laughs> dang. Yep. So final point on the blue-black rogues list, again, Allurus of the Dream Den deck. This is one of the things that uh, lets them you know, keep the only having eight rogues in play to get that mill effect off the Bitter Blossom, the Lurus out of the sideboard... Uh, pull it up into your hand for three mana to cast it the next turn. If they've, you know, wiped you recently uh, with the Supreme Verdict or whatever, you can get back in the game and keep rolling. So Lurus just all over the place. Even though it's only ever a single copy, those foil extended arts would not surprise me to top 150 before it ever sees any kind of premium reprint. Uh, yeah. Yeah, quite possibly. I, it's hard. It's yeah. I, I I do wonder if if him and some of the and Yorion will sneak in somewhere, but I mean look at look at the eighth place list, the black red uh, death shadow scourge list again. It's a Lurus deck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's just it's anywhere that you've got black or white, and if you're playing in a format where the casting cost of your creatures is two or less, right? Yeah. And fifty. 50 bucks for the extended art foils definitely makes you wonder. I mean, $50 is not all that much money, especially if you only feel like you have to buy one of them and it's your companion. Well, and I'm pretty sure I called those back at 30, I want to say. Let me just double check that. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure we have visited this card on more than one occasion. But, uh, you know, even still, I could, it was it was a good pick then, and honestly, it might still be fine now. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's got some more room to run given everything that's using it. Uh, all right, so moving on along to the segment, second segment of the evening, top paper movers. It's been relatively quiet, other than the random stuff that pops off during spoiler season. You got uh, deranged hermit uh, going from thirty to fifty or so on the back of that fancy new squirrel uh, in Kaldheim that makes all the other squirrel cards a little better. Into the North foils some Cold Snap, moving up a little further, this time from about, say, 17 to 30. Uh, again, on the assumption that we're getting Snow Permanence for Cal Time, which looks like a lock. Curse of Misfortunes at a Dark Ascension foils from 250 or so to 5. Nothing really impressive there, but probably seeing play in Gen Arcanum Weaver that people are building out of Commander Legends. Uh, Areo Soratami Ascendant, non-foils, going from 11 to 25 on the back of that modern blue-white uh, Areo lock deck that's been making the rounds. Um, this is a flip card of a different stripe, uh, the original flip cards, if you will, and it has not seen a reprint anytime recently. I went, or ever, I think, right? I went looking for Areo uh, when I was putting this list together. I'm like, oh, maybe I can find a copy hiding somewhere. Nope. Nope. Uh, like I meant, I mean, like looking for copies floating around for sale somewhere, and I could not find any. There's, uh, there's one that English were, foil that on were not already very expensive. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's one English foil on TCG right now for fifty. It's probably a buy. I, I, I don't see Wizards making any effort to include this card anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. Buying this card, at, so we're showing the price is ten to twenty five. 
Buying this card at $25 is probably completely fine. I They haven't printed it since Saviors of Kamigawa. I don't know why that would change tomorrow uh, or really anytime next year. And it's a type of card that like I think people will pay 60 bucks for their one copy. Wizards just seems to be in an era where they're signaling in all different manner of ways this year that they want to flip the card over, not around. And I don't see them revisiting that that principle anytime soon, especially because this is one of the only ones that anyone cares to be playing with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is... Oh, God. I... There's a ninja. Pressed, there, I can barely there, remember any other. There's a there's ninja. Like there's a ninja rat that's okay. That once you flip it, you get. I think you have to remove cards Zoomy from your grave robber. Yeah, right? like you get to flip. You remove cards from your opponent's graveyard, and then once you run out, you it's, get you flip it, and then it gets to start reanimating things. Yeah, it's remove a card from an opponent's graveyard, and then if it has, they have no creatures in their graveyard. I believe you get to it re- will reanimate things, so it's useful. Like if they have like exactly one in their graveyard, because you can flip it immediately. There was also a red one that was uh, pretty useful in a couple scenarios, but yeah, I mean it's like the list is at most five, and you're stretching a little if you're at that. Once you get to that, so I don't know where they would stick this. I mean, the thing is, is you can print this as a normal print run. Like it's like there's nothing weird about printing this card in in the printing technology required, so they could stick it in you know whatever the list, yeah, or it could be in the something list. like mm-hmm. that. And the list would honestly be for a card like this be enough of an inventory change to actually possibly matter because Maybe. this. Well, you're right. I mean, for the most part, we don't care, but that much about the list but saviors of kamigawa was a long time ago and that is the only printing of this card the argument that this is a supply side price shift is absolutely true and it's not like there's massive amounts of latent demand for this card but uh it's, it's also a card that even if you can you is this legal in commander uh it was and it is not anymore yeah so it's not like you can play it in Commander. So they have, if they're thinking about what should we reprint for Commander, it being banned there keeps it out of a whole bunch of different lists. It's not going to show up in a Commander Legends or what have you. It's not going to show up in any Commander decks. So and you know their focus is on fueling that format. So this this card could get real pricey. You give it given it some more time. Um, mm-hmm. The list is really the only thing I can think of where they might want to print it. Maybe in some kind of secret layer, but the theme would need to be. You know, like, there's a rumor that we're going to Kamigawa, Cyberpunk Kamigawa, maybe in early 2022. And if that's the case, they might do, you know, some old uh, Kamigawa cards in the Cyberpunk aesthetic. Yeah, that's possible. Like, I I, I guess if if that is what's going to happen, I, I find the idea of going to a Cyberpunk Kamigawa to be very odd because magic has never strayed into that aesthetic before. And like, that's a pretty far departure, I think from what they normally, you know, what you're used to. I, I just see, never, I just see it as being Cal like Kaladesh with ninjas. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, I guess that's the way you'd have to go with it, but that's not, it's not cyberpunk though. Right. Like cyberpunk has a, if you, if you take a, elements of, is it and Kaladesh, you can get pretty close to cyberpunk. 
Yeah, I mean, it would fit if if they do that in 2022. It would fit with them being about two years behind the zeitgeist uh, <laughs> popular cinematic yeah. cultures. Given and, that Cyberpunk 2077 came out like two weeks ago. Yeah, and when they and when when they originally were planning it, they're like, "That's going to be the biggest game of the year." We, we want to be on. We want to be tapping into that. Well, cultural. It would have been like. It would have been like three months ago they went, wow, it turns out this cyberpunk game is going to be really big. You know what? We should make a cyberpunk set in two years. Well, they planned way further ahead than that. This would have been like, because they were, I, I think where the rumor came from was that in surveys that they sent out to people, there were questions about ninjas in a cyberpunk aesthetic. Yeah. And then the other cross reference was that they registered a relevant domain that was like return to Kamigawa or something or... Mm-hmm. something like that which i have mixed feelings about them doing cyberpunky stuff in a pseudo japanese setting that seems like it might trot on some unfortunate racial tropes i will leave that the discussion of that to individuals better informed than i am but it raises the hairs on the back of my neck okay <laughs> seal of fire out of dissension foils 18 to 40 something plus shows up here and there in jund and death shadow rakdos builds uh, like the one we were just looking at in modern and hasn't been printed in foil in a while um in and certainly not the original the fo- original foils will tend to shrug off any reprints anyway because they're old enough Dwarven Thaumaturgist at a Weatherlight, $1.50 to $4. That's just on the back of Dwarves and Kaldheim. That card is not good, so expect a, a swift retrace. <laughs> Crater Hoof, Behemoth, uh, Foils. It's only been printed twice. Avacyn Restored and Modern Masters 2017. And 2017 was three years ago. Don't see any home for a Foil Crater Hoof this year so far. Uh, so, <laughs> so you mean 2021? <laughs> yeah. I don't see any, there's nothing on the docket for 2021 where this makes sense, because we know that the premium set is not uh, primarily reprint focused. It's entirely possible that Modern Horizons 2 will include things like Crater Hoof, but it's not really a modern card right now, so. Crater Hoof definitely feels like the type of card that would be a good reprint for Modern Horizons. It's been a while since we've seen it. It used to be a reasonable component of modern especially if it kind of fits or helps a theme they were trying to push in modern horizons 2 anyways it could might earn its spot it could show up in the time spiral remastered old border foils that would be cool um anyway point being that avison restored foils are over are somewhere between 150 and 300 now if you have any interest in owning original ones not the kind of card that would make me want to own the original but to each their own Modern Master 2017 foils, in the meantime, are also drying up close to 90. This card is a mega EDH staple. Forget modern. So the the foils are going to charge hard. If, if we don't get a reprint of this in 2021, these, <laughs> it's going to be expensive even a non-foil. Yeah. That is a real popular card for Commander 2, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Reign of Gore foils from Dissension, uh, 12 to 40 or so. Shows up in the sideboard of the uh, Black Red Death Shadow Scourge of the Skyclaves builds. Uh, Diamond Fairy out of Cold Snap foils from a dollar to ten. That's just Kaldheim's Snow Hype. This card's garbage. I would not be looking to pick this up. Um, there's there's going to be a lot of snow related cards that move in price due to 
Kaldheim, and I would warrant that you stay away from all of them. Or like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't go deep on any of them. If you have them lying around in a binder or something, pull them up, put them up at 20% below everybody else and get out while the getting is good because that window of opportunity is going to be short. It's funny because I pulled out uh, from the bad specs box the other day 20 dwarven recruiters that I picked up at 25 cents <laughs> with CK credit and dwarven recruiter foils, six of them at five bucks. And I was like, wait a second, why do I have these from way before? And I was like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. there was supposed to be dwarves in, El- in a Throne of Eldraine. Mm-hmm. And they ended up giving us like a tiny handful and none of them really mattered. For was the... it Throne of Eldraine? Yeah. I thought it was something else. No, it was Throne of Eldraine because remember we got the, the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves thing where you can have seven of them in your deck and then Thorbrand is a, is a dwarf mm. as well. Like They existed in uh you know the red tribe for uh for that set there just weren't many of them to speak of now so that was turned out to be foolish they went to the bad specs box and went in the penalty area and now they just got pulled back out and now they're worth money because both of those cards are pumping hard and actually do make sense because there's some there are some cool dwarves in cal time that people are likely to build around for commander they're good now because time is a flat circle uh that goes around and around never mm-hmm. progresses um last one yeah i i feels like a, it feels like a tribe i have talked about more than once like a recurring we wish they got there <laughs> there's gonna be more because the the D set's gonna have a bunch of dwarves too it's a prominent tribe yeah. in, in that lore as well well now it seems like they actually might have i mean they've gotten there in the sense that like people are buying them apparently so yeah they've succeeded in some capacity Shiv and Phoenix is the top of this list, and this is like your nonsense data of the week. Foils from Ursa's Legacy going from two dollars and sixty cents to three seventy-five. That means nothing. Card is at most ten to twenty dollars in foil would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, nobody, nobody needs this. Nobody wants this. All right, top uh, Magic Online movers of the week. Relatively quiet, mostly standard movement. Stormwing Entity going from one point six ticks to three, just over three ticks. Uh, standard Blue Red Tempo. Also some occasional Pioneer and Modern play for that card. Roiling Vortex uh, as it at his Endercard Rising from point two six ticks to point five. Uh, a double up on the back of use in Red Aggro and Standard. And then Phoenix of Ash went from point zero three ticks to point one five. 400% returns if you managed to get a nice stack of them along the way because you were seeing the future of Standard on Magic Online. Gruel and Red Aggro both making use of that card. Yeah. Sure, those are exactly what I would be predicting the future to be doing well. <laughs> yeah. Those decks. Uh, it, it's kind of funny. The, the, the pro and the Magic pros and the rest of us the wedge being driven between those two communities is increasingly large during COVID because they've all been pulled on to arena by the powers that be at WOTC wanting to focus on that product while everybody's stuck at home. While the rest of us are all talking about what commander cards we're going to buy. <laughs> yeah. The, the, <sighs> Wizards is definitely annoyed that they had this year slated as the year of Commander and then just got absolutely daggered. Everybody got um, blown out, yeah. Yeah. Glad so, we, and, I, and you're right, like it has caused the division where all the competitive players have to play a format that really nobody else is interested in playing. 
Well, and if you want it, you can't and you can't pivot, right? You can't pivot to commander being competitive. That's not going to happen. Well, and the the issue, if you want to see the issue writ large in terms of its representation in the retail space, just take a look at what's happened with all the GP promos that Channel Fireball has been vomiting out for 10 months straight via these endless, uh, you know, ensemble, you know, buy a box, get all these free GP promos and some play mats we got lying around. They've just got warehouse, a warehouse full of all the stuff that they got to get rid of that they should have been able to get, get uh, out the door via the GP circuit. And without Magic Fest to speak of for the foreseeable future, we're just getting tempted into buying, you know, Zendikar Rising collector booster box plus all this promo stuff. Get it for one eighty nine ninety nine, blah 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 blah. Yeah, we'll we'll give it to you the extra crap to you at the cost of shipping it, so we can have the space back in our warehouse. Yeah, and I mean, I, I picked up one of these early early on that you ended up having to reship for me, and you know the the path to exile art, soul ring art, there's a lot a lot of good stuff in here. Um, yeah. So there's gonna be you know cheap promos for people to pick up that are gonna likely to stay cheap for the foreseeable future, given the way that they're being distributed. What'll be funny is they're getting the 2021 promos prepared, I'm sure, and they're not, they're not going to make any. They're, you know, if if they if they exist, there's going to be like a very low supply because they're not going to want to run a huge volume of that stuff with no idea if they're ever going to get to give it away. And if they do make it, then in like 2022, Magic's back in full swing. Everyone's going to stores. And people want that promo, like, I don't know, whatever, some popular card. And there's going to be like 12 of them because no one went to those GPs. And they'll be the, the COVID cards, the COVID GP cards. All right. So let's move on over to our cards to watch. This is going to be our last installment of this for the year. And then we are going to move on over to reviewing our cards to watch for all of 2020. Uh, at least for you and I, we'll probably, we probably won't get to the uh, member ranking the member picks this week, but maybe we'll do that uh, first week of the new year. Um, so my first pick this week is a pretty solid one. Sanctum Prelate uh, out of Conspiracy 2. Source these in Europe around 15 or so. You can still get copies in North America around 18. This card looks like a rocket ship to hit 35. Th this was a relatively low production set. It's been out of print for a few years. There are basically none of these lying around. Total listings on TCG right now uh, between $19 and $24. There's eight results, total of 14 copies or something like that. Foils are headed for 100 plus. It's in a ton of legacy and vintage death and taxes decks. Not really an EDH card uh, to speak of. Single printing, there's an evidence of Japanese interest because it showed up, uh, there was a really good uh, MTG deals related buy list posted to Facebook this week that a bunch of us took part uh, in via the ProTrader Discord. Somebody flagged it early on. Uh, I sent in a really profitable $1,500 buy list uh, this morning um, that was just bonkers. I think it was like Dockside Extortionist, 20 copies, in at 12 bucks out at 40 a piece cash yeah. like just that was pretty gross whoa. uh and along the way i noticed that his offer on sanctum prelate was really good so i went and checked out the other japanese buy list that i track and sure enough looks like japan is playing a lot of this card presumably for vintage and legacy so 
without a reprint or an appearance in the list or something, like this this car is just going to get there. There's just no copies lying around. Oh yeah, stuff like this is sort of gross in that you know it it's out there and it exists and it shows up in this one weird product and it's a mythic and then it doesn't get reprinted again for years and years and like there's utility in it like and no no format is super deep on it but there's several people several formats who are interested in it and you end up with like $70 cards uh because there's just enough of a demand and just small enough supply that you know that's all that can really happen i i do think the reprint risk here you know, uh, the location of the reprint is another question, but, you know, if you were to na- get nailed by a reprint, that would probably hurt pretty bad. This is sort of in the same boat, it essentially, as like a Raya, where it's, you know, it's severely supply constrained, probably not quite as bad as Raya, where additional copies would, would hurt pretty bad. But without them, you're in good shape. So if you're not not concerned about where they're going to show up, then it's a good choice. And again, it's, I, I don't know where they would put something like this. Like maybe they decide to print it into modern in modern yeah, horizons too. That's probably the, the, the a one risk here is that, you, but I don't consider that significant. Well, if it's a rare in modern horizons too, you're right. It's going to tank. Oof, I don't think they would make this rare. They could. That would be an odd choice. Well, it's, it's rare in conspiracy, right? No, it's mythic. Oh yeah, it is mythic. Well, I don't think that, I I have trouble picturing them wasting a a mythic slot on this, but they could downshift this to rare. Mm, I suppose they might be able do, to. Do you think this card is safe to print in a modern? Uh, probably. I mean, it's a white creature that costs three mana that doesn't do anything immediately and annoys people who cast spells. Like, yes, I think this is safe. I think it could very well have a pretty reasonable effect on the format but i think it's safe interesting so yeah I mean, as far as we, you know as far as we know what safe means in that format regardless of whether you think modern horizons 2 is a risk you probably get six months to find out because there's nothing between here and there that leads me to believe it's it's about to catch a reprint um when we get to strixhaven in april or early may you know it could show up in in a list adjustment there but so far, it hasn't, so I don't think it's likely. The thing is that the the additions to the list for Kaldheim are thematic. Like, they added a bunch of snow cards and stuff to the list. And they only changed a minority of the list, just like we predicted. So, assuming that that's happening for Strixhaven, I would expect to see wizard reprints. Not mm. random human clerics with death and taxes effects. So, I think, you know... 35 within six months is probably doable anyway but if it dodges all of the reprints for 2021 then this card could be any amount really yeah even if you're concerned about the list like we know that the you have the lead time on that is significant just because they don't they don't flood the market so even if you find out it's in the list it's not like there's suddenly an extra forty thousand copies out there tomorrow it takes a long time for those to actually hit shelves which gives you plenty of time to work your way out, um, you know, before it becomes a problem. The really Modern Horizons 2 is the only place you'd actually have to worry, and I still don't think you'd have to worry. One of the things we're seeing again and again and again is that a short-run ancillary product, Conspiracy 2, Jumpstart, Battle Bond, the annual Commander decks, if they print something in there and then don't print it again for a while... That's the best of the the top five or ten cards in the, that situation tend to make money pretty much every time. 
So, you know, it's not a huge surprise that I, I'm seeing Dockside Extortionist buy list at 40 when I saw other buy lists in Japan offering 110 US for the Japanese version. What? Because apparently it's a vintage card now. And sure. P- picture how many. Whatever you guys want to do over there. P- I don't p- care. Picture how many commander decks were sold in Japan two years ago. Yeah. To vintage players who didn't see Dockside Extortionist being useful to them. So it's just like a complete dearth of supply. There's a gaping mm-hmm. hole for the like, whatever, 400 people that want that card. And so you've got buy lists getting very aggressive to pick it up because they're sold out and they can't get their hands on any. Yeah, I mean, that type of stuff works out well. And, you know, we're seeing it with, um, is Dockside Extortionist? Wait, let me look at that one, if that's the one I think it is. It probably is. Uh, yeah, it is. You've got that one. You've also got, uh, what, like the Jumpstart cards are, I feel like, in a similar situation. Yeah, very much so. Um, but, you know, that probably has more to do with the print constraints, but it still ends up being roughly the same principle. And there's all these types of things scattered about. And, um, you know, we've talked about these cards. Vizier the Menagerie comes to mind is another one that's sort of in a similar boat. Uh, with that, you know, although, no, not Vizier of the Menagerie. Oh, there's a different one that whose name I'm not going to think of while we're sitting here. But, uh, yeah, these types of cards can be real juicy if you're able to catch them early enough. Well, like, out of the Commander decks last year, because Extortionist was, two years ago, was Commander 2019. This year, it's about Fierce Guardianship, defecti- Deflecting Swat, Deadly Rollick, um, whatever the white one is that I can't th- remember off the top of my head. All of those cards are in position to continue to gain. I haven't handed in my deflecting swats yet to a buy list uh, because they're currently sitting at 30 or so on TCG player. So I think they've got some more room. Flawless Maneuver is down to... Copies are under $7, but there's a massive wall. The gaming company has 171 copies at 650 that's a lot of copies that is anchoring the price real low um you should write him a letter and ask him to stop it well i mean i'd almost consider buying them i think flawless maneuver is a solid card that's the free white spell discard a white card and all your creatures gain indestructible until the end of turn um could be that Acroma's will supersedes this card in some way um but you know, Fierce Guardianship and Deflecting Swat don't have easy analogs, and both of those are probably going to continue to be gainers um, as the year goes on. The Jumpstart product is a little sketchier because we're starting to see signs of Jumpstart filling in in the market. I've, I saw some Facebook sales this week where somebody had 100 boxes for sale and starting to get some some pressure from vendor partners that they might have some they, they can unload to us once they feel out whether the market is still willing to support a higher price or whether they're going to have to accept uh, a more realistic number, depending on how much inventory manifests. Um, but when you have something like, you know, Sanctum Prelate that comes out of Conspiracy Two, that's been out of print for a long while, where there's not, there aren't any, isn't any treasure trove of Conspiracy Two boxes sitting around waiting to be cracked in response to the price movement. This one is at the mercy of the market until the reprint comes. Yeah. Yep, I agree. Uh, it is in a better position than something like the Jumpstart stuff is just because of that. So anyway, you can feel if you have an EU connection, pick them up at 15 or so. If you don't, you can pick them up in North America between 18 and 20. I think 
a handful of these targeting a $35 exit or so is pretty reasonable. If you don't, too bad. What about your first pick? Uh, so I'm going to start with uh, Karn's Temporal Sundering. This is the time walk effect that was printed in Dominaria, where Karn uh, temporals some sunders. This is a, it's a legendary sorcery for six mana. It's um, target player takes an extra turn and then bounce a non-land permanent to its owner's hand, and then you exile the card. So you get a time walk and a bounce effect, uh, but you have to have a legendary permanent well, creature or planeswalker. Your lands don't count uh, for some reason. But the foils on uh, Karn's Simple Sundering, the cheapest copy right now is $5. It is in 10,000 EDH rec decks, which surprised me. I was expecting like three to 5,000, not 10,000. Yep. There are... Surprises me too. Um, yeah, there are like 30-ish copies, maybe below $10, um, and then a couple left above that, and that's it. But I think that this surprised me with how popular it was, and uh, I don't think we're getting another version of this, uh, especially in foil for God knows how long. Um, reprint risk on that I think is very low, so... You know, you can grab these right now at about five bucks, and I'm sure you'll be able to sell them between 10 and 15 uh, in 2021. This is another card that looks very unlikely to catch a reprint anytime soon. Yeah, I just, I just, I don't know why they would, where they would, why they would bother. Yeah. I like it. I like but this it is fun. You can do things like, you know, bounce somebody's propaganda to make attacking much easier, and then strike, take your extra turn, alpha strike, finish them off, move on. Yeah, time walk plus bounce their permanent is uh, really obnoxious. Yep. <laughs> like, especially, I I would have to go look, but I do wonder if there's something, a permanent that returns exiled cards. I don't think there's anything that returns exiled cards to your hand, but I bet there's something that returns exiled cards to your library or graveyard or something. So like you can bounce a per bounce that permanent to your hand and then play that permanent, which returns cards, temporal sundering to your graveyard or your library, which you get back. I mean, it's a little roundabout, but uh, could lead to some amusing interactions there too. I wonder what the, I'm going to go back and check on the low. I would imagine this shows a pretty impressive curve to date because they these must have got real low when Dominaria was heavily opened. One would imagine. Let's see. Looks like market foil on these back ways was as low as two bucks so we've already seen a relatively strong recovery up into this this current price range in the four to five dollar zone um suggests exactly what you're saying uh in terms of the edh rec stats ten thousand people minimum have reported playing it which means tens of thousands of people actually do play it and all you need is one percent of them to want the foil and away you go yeah i was uh pleasantly surprised to find that all right, that seems like a good one. Totally out of left field, caught me off guard. Uh, Tevish Zot, Doom of Fools, uh, is one of two strong planeswalkers introduced in Commander uh, Legends. Uh, it exists in both collector booster boxes and regular booster boxes. So if regular booster boxes are opened in quantity for a long time this year, this could be under some pressure. Leaves me a little dubious as it as to whether this is one you need to target right away or not. 
But it's already in 552 decks on EDH Rex since release. That's 5% of all black decks reported since then. It's got a shallow inventory at present and a steep ramp. $17 for the foils. I can see this going 17 to 35 unless the supply fills in on Commander Legends. But I'm I'm questioning whether if and when that will happen. Here is one of the banner mythics from that set uh and a cool commander too if memory serves me here yeah and he's a partner as well so it gives you some additional features there and a 99 card like you don't even need to partner or commander this card yeah yeah yeah, that's true as well um yeah i mean the number you know he's not i mean five percent five percent of black deck census printing is good um and i'm saying that strictly because my next card i'm going to talk about is in five percent of black deck since it was printed but uh that i mean 120 120 is very good for a format as wide as edh uh where decks are doing very different things if you're making it into one and 20 i think that's a, a a strong quantity to be looking at uh and there's no way that supply on these is particularly deep or will remain that way for very long yeah, and it's not so much that he's a black card, so much as that he's going to fit into very some very specific strategies for a very long time, and also be immune to reprint for quite some time. So, I I wouldn't blame you if you wanted to see how Commander Legends inventory settles over the next few months before d- diving in on these. But if you wanted a personal copy, I think you could definitely snap that off now without too much trouble, and and see how it goes because even though these these show up in the regular booster boxes they don't show up at a very high drop rate there this is a foil mythic after all Mm -hmm. i mean i i've snapped up a good amount of commander legends products so far um and haven't shied too far away from picking it up as we go um i think that i suspect that may end up with less product being open than people might expect and you know this is this is sort of when you're supposed to buy that stuff when the supply is deep and it looks like um you know it's going to be around for a while because then 6 months later it's not it's like oh yeah it was popular it was good like plus 1 sack a, a token creature and draw two cards <laughs> is solid card advantage right off the bat and the plus 2 being able to make tokens to fuel said strategies is nice synergy if I'm playing this in Atraxa, I'm minus 10-ing off a doubling season to gain control of all the commanders in the game, both in and mm-hmm. out of play. There's a lot going on here, and the art's pretty cool. Anyone who's played Commander knows the value of uh, being able to sacrifice permanence. That is quietly very useful. Or creatures, I should say. Corvold decks will want it, etc. Oh yeah, like any deck that wants it, wants it as dumb as that sounds and then lots of other decks will be won't mind having access to it as well all right tell me, but tell me about your second pick um my five percent of black deck since it was printed is another card that surprised me with how popular it's been uh, also hailing from dominaria is cabal stronghold which is the spiritual successor to urborg um, cabal stronghold is a land that taps for black and as soon as this page loads, I will give you the actual word. Sorry, taps for wastes, colorless. Uh, there's a card that kind of we thought was going to be interesting and seems to have not done a lot, wastes. Um, Cabal Stronghold taps for colorless or 
add three mana tap, add black for each swamp you control. So again, basically like an Urborg. Um, it's in 15,000 EDH rec decks right now, 5% of all black decks since it was printed. Uh, you can grab the foils for six bucks on this guy. Um, there are about 25 copies left under $10. So I think you snag these at five to six bucks, six bucks really. Uh, and then later this year, you'll be able to sell them for 10 to again, between 10 and $15. Like there, you know, there's enough inventory there at the moment, but it's not going to last. And we didn't really, I haven't really talked about this yet in this segment or in, in today's episode, but, um, in, for our non-Canadian listeners, the uh, Congress is debating whether or not they're going to send everyone another stimulus check. And I obviously don't know what the answer to that is going to be. But if they do send people money, they're going to go buy magic cards with it. Uh, and don't forget, tax return seasons are on the corner. We're not far away from that either, which always spurs a little bit of action. So some of this stuff could see a nice little sales bump if people get some extra money in their pockets. I know I have a stack of these sitting around from when I called it like a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Um, was it that long? I ago? think it saw a brief spike in that locus, and then probably on the back of like Crick or something, son of Yogmoth, uh, and then retreated. And you know you've got copies that have been undercut for a while, but if it dodges a reprint, then these six dollar copies cannot last. It's it's it fits in mono black decks very neatly in EDH, and will continue to do so. Hmm. So yeah, six, cool. six to fifteen seems very reasonable as long as it dodges the reprint. Yeah, that's your your risk, but I don't think it's too likely. Too likely. So here's a two of my three picks this week non foil. Who is this guy? Hmm. Aliens steal your co-host. Apex Devastator out of Commander Legends currently get them around eleven bucks. It's gonna head for twenty five to thirty feel very confident just regular old copies just not even the extended art ones no nope, just... just regular copies said th this is a timmy card from here to eternity it says cascade 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 people are going to put that in their online stores and it's going to get featured on command zone and people are going to be talking about it and whenever anybody sees it in a display case or something next year they're going to go oh Cascade, Cascade, what does that do? And it's going to stimulate a conversation, and they're going to think that's cool, and they're going to buy it. And it's already in 7% of all green EDH rec decks since release. So shallow supply, tight ramp, massive Timmy card, but also can be used in more competitive decks. That'll, in super unique, you're not going to see another giant green creature with a bunch of Cascade echoes on it, uh, maybe ever. <laughs> so... This thing probably goes three to five years without a reprint. I bet you it ends up 50 or 60 bucks before it ever sees one. I mean, that's certainly possible. It's a big, cool card uh, that will likely see a lot of commander play. A lot of people with cubes, I think, will put it in their decks. Seems a little unlikely to hit any competitive formats, but I think the appeal both at the sort of enfranchised casual level, which is, you know, cube and commander, as well as the kitchen table demand is is a good place to be i am going to nitpick your shallow supply comment because i see 90 vendors on tcg player 90 vendors is not super deep for this card uh well let me just take a look 
I, I'm not giving you too hard. Are, 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 you, are you sure you're looking at near mint? Cutting it with the foils? Uh, I am looking at near mint Apex Devastator from Commander Legends. Uh, now that is not filtered for language, but it seems to be mostly English. Yeah, I'm, I'm down to if I go normal near mint English, I'm at 55 vendors, and the ramp from 10 to uh, 16 doesn't take more than 25 copies. So for a just released Mythic, this is not deep at all. On Apex, Apex Devastator. Devastator. Yep, Commander Legends. I don't see, and you're on TCG player. Yep. Normal, near-mint, English, shipping country, United States. Are you... How many results per page are you on? 50. How is it that we are seeing different values for this? Are you sure you have those filters set? I have uh, shipping country, United States, uh, near-mint copies. I don't have language selected. If I select language, it drops to 89 if I go to English specifically. Wait, did you say you have direct or verified sellers on? Do you have foils turned off? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't have foils turned off. Turn foils off. Oh, uh, that's what it was. You have no only normal copies. Yeah. Yeah, okay, now I see it. Fo yeah. Foils don't count. Nobody gives a shit about foils anymore, and they're clamshells in this set. There's going to be a lot, a big push away from foils for this set because they're clamshells. So I never, I never think to turn foils off. I just sort of <clears throat> just don't look at them. Especially for this set, it matters because the 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 non-foil extended arts and the regular copies are both going to be more popular just because they lay flat for a lot of people. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I get where you're coming from. I that's a a different angle to. A, consider this on for sure um you know you look at like the tcg market and it's all like what is it eleven dollars it's yeah eleven dollars for normal and twelve fifty for foil and you're like well i should be buying the foils isn't it yeah maybe if the foils in this are really bad it's not worth looking at those and this could end up being those could end up being a trap um but you know uh that this nitpicky point aside i think that the card is a powerful card. Um, like I said, I, I think it's going to be great in all the casual formats, as including kitchen table. I, I don't know why. Like you could see it again in a couple odds and ends places, but like it doesn't. It's not any more likely than any other card, so I'm not really that worried about it. Um, now, if you if you want to get if you prefer really short supply foil extended art versions of this are there's a handful of them under forty on TCG Player. And there are 12 results total. The biggest sell wall is two copies. These, <laughs> yeah, these, that... these foil extended arts are headed for $100. And I <laughs> I don't care if it takes three months or a year because it's still going to be a, a killer return. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I've looked at this a couple times. You can get one at 35 right now. And then they ramp up to, th to 40 very quickly. And uh, I have looked at this more than once, trying to decide if I should buy them or not. The answer is probably yes. You're probably supposed to buy them. Um, All right, so what's your final pick this week? Yeah. Anyways. Oh, wow. Did you know... Oh, wait. Does the English copy do that too? Wait, hold on one second. Oh, the English copy does do it. It drops... The borderless ones drop the rules text. Yeah. It That's just, it just cool. says cascade, 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 cascade. Yeah. More cascade. cascade. I don't know how many Cascata. there are. Four of them, I think. Yeah. 
enough. Uh, yeah, so no, I, I do like I do like the way that that's positioned. Yes, I think you might be in for a little bit of a ride waiting for that, but I think that you probably won't be too upset if you have these at eleven. Um, nor do I think even with a reprint, you'd probably get much lower than seven or eight. So I think the risk level is very low too. Uh, oh, and a side note that if you're talking about non-foils, your buy lists are going to be easier to work with and yep. you'll probably sell more copies because it will, um, you'll, the liquidity on non-foil copies is just always higher. They're easier to move. Uh, so that's, that's good too. Uh, my last pick for the week, another card that caught my attention and i was surprised to see when i was because i i looked at cards temporal sundering and then i'm like i'm gonna go look at dominaria because this has got a lot of copies you know it's eleven thousand decks i'm like i wonder if it's in that many if this is like the most popular card in dominaria and started poking around and that's where i found cabal stronghold and also danitha capuchin paragon uh what card is this you're like i don't remember this card you're right you don't remember this card this is a uncommon three mana two two human knight uh first strike vigilance lifelink but the important part here is aura and equipment spells cost you one less to cast so it's a three mana creature that reduces the cost of all your auras and equipments obviously we've seen um some excitement around that mechanic recently commander legends had this as a sub sub theme and equipment and enchantments um seems to be a recurring pattern for people to come back to in commander you know once or twice a year you can get the foils on danitha right now at about six bucks um is her cheapest copy there are nine vendors on tcg player right now selling foils of this card um and i think the pre-release foil has like two uh so there are you know one guy's got seven it's mtg mint card which is huge um and untapped games has a play set but there are like what less than 20 foil copies of this total on tcg player right now um and you can get it in at five or six bucks so i know that the foil supply in dominaria is should be on the higher side right i think this is after the foil change or before i can't remember where the foil change was but it's before the, the the foil change. It is before. Yeah, the foil change starts after after War of the Spark. No, M twenty. M twenty. You see, I I have lost all sense of time on these. I used to be able to tell you every set in order, but I can't do it anymore. Because yeah, baby brain. That just just blurs together. Uh, in any case, I I think that the supply is like nothing, and at five or six bucks for foil, like that, cl- that clearly the demand is there. It has or so. and equipment synergies. Yeah, and it's at over 9,000 EDH direct decks already. Like, the, the card's popular. So you can buy these at five or six bucks, and you'll be very happy that you did. You'll sell them again for probably 12 to $15 in this year. Yeah, that's a nice one. Uh, final note on just to double back to Apex Devastator. Card Kingdom currently paying 750 cash, 975 credit on non-foils. Mm. So well covered. Yeah, that's, uh, 750 is pretty, pretty good for a card, especially with that size of a TCG player inventory. There, there was no major sell walls. Unlike that other card we looked at with 171 copies, there nobody's got deep inventory on on the mythics. Cool. All right, so our uh, pro trader member selection this week is top deck the halls. This is the Christmas promo uh, that Watsi gave out. I think mostly to staff and partners, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, that's how that works. They do one of these every year. Some of them have been more popular than others. Um, the key here is that it's a potential arbitrage opportunity if you sc- sc- 
scoop them up in Europe around 45 or 50 US uh, all in. You might be able to unload them stateside for about 80 or so. It's got a snow theme that also seems to signal what's coming in Cal time. And the only caution cautionary point I would put beside this pick is that some other years have settled more in the 30 to 40 dollar range so if the supply filters into the market and the demand drops off a cliff when it's a little bit further out of the spotlight then you could see these retrace but at present if you could get them quickly into your hands it looks like you might be able to make 20 bucks a copy on on 50 or something like that after fees yeah, I mean, uh, arbitrage picks are never leave a lot to be discussed. Um, I don't know what the supply looks like for the for or um, I guess yeah, the supply line for these holiday cards tends to look like over time. I didn't research this before uh, beforehand, so I don't know for sure. I, I and I but I do agree that some of them have had better returns than others, and I don't claim to know what the difference is at the moment. I, but arbitrage picks are, are very straightforward. Like, yep, if you can buy it at 20 or 30 bucks less than it costs here in America, uh, then that seems like a pretty good choice. There's not a lot to argue with there. Um, and if it's one of the better ones that, that retains some of the popularity, then all the better. Yep. All right, so we'll move on to our final segment this week. This is the 2020 Year in Review. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the the most the themes that defined MTG Finance for the year 2020, and then we're going to take a look at our uh, our selections for cards to watch and see how we did for the year, uh, at least up till this point, and. Uh, <laughs> It's been a it's been a shit year, but we did pretty good. I think that's pretty much pretty, pretty much the summary. <laughs> yeah, I'm not disappointed. First of all, I want to tell everyone that they damn well better appreciate this because this took hours to compile all this data. Uh, Although, <laughs> but I mean, I'm not asking for any sympathy. That's our fault for for not having this better track. I am. <laughs> I'll take that stand. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, you know, overall, I was pleased with it. I think, especially given the uh, tumultuous nature, to say the least. I feel like we did a pretty good job uh, with where we were. You know, I think Pioneer kind of caught us off guard earlier in the year. I think of like the 10 worst cards that I have on my list, I think like eight of them were Pioneer related basically. And they were all picks from early this year, basically before and just just as COVID was hitting. Um, but yeah, I think I think... I guess the question is, how do you benchmark it? Like, what do you consider to have been successful? Like, if you're investing in the stock market, like a 5% ROI is pretty good, right? Like, that seems very good. Whereas well, in Magic decent. is like, yeah, decent. In Magic, like, is 100% supposed to be excellent? Is 20% excellent? It's harder to have a frame of reference. Um, but I, I'm, I'm pleased with it. I don't think that it was, I think it was probably slightly below performance, at least on my half of the equation compared to years prior. But uh, I mean, by a couple percentage points, not a significant amount. Probably take a big step back first and just talk about, you know, what 2020 looked like for MTG Finance and some of the, the bigger events. Um, probably start with you know, COVID is obviously the defining feature of the year across the globe for everybody. And it's been a real rough year for smaller retailers, especially if they didn't have their online game uh, 
locked down heading into the COVID scenario where everybody was trapped at home. And at first they weren't spending any money. And then the reality was that if you're trapped at home long enough, whatever you've got to spend, you're going to spend on entertaining yourself. And collectibles have had an extremely good year. We've seen massive explosions in both interest and sales for sports cards collectibles. You've got, you know, trend lines that were already ongoing in that segment where you have very expensive versions of sets. You know, there's like a, some set that's out this week where a single box of like eight cards is ten grand or something. And I think they're start. Wait, I think they're starting the. It's a Dutch auction, so you go to the Panini website. And they're going to start at forty grand, and you have to choose when to get in before they sell out. Wait, wait, what is this for? For sports cards, for Panini, for basketball, I believe. And it's it's like eight card, oh. eight cards in a very fancy box. So like their version of Ultimate Secret Lair. And I think they have, I think they're guaranteed a signature, like a one of one signature from a hot NBA player or something. They might be the kind of cards that have like a piece of the 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 person's shoe or a piece of their jersey, and it's signed by them. Bottom line, they make very very few of these, but they figured out that they can go really low volume and super high margin, <laughs> just ridiculous margin. And yeah, so there's going to be there's probably average price paid will end up being something like eighteen thousand or something per box. Ugh. Just insane. And then of course over in Pokemon, we had just the craziest year like you've got pokemon first edition boxes their version of alpha or beta boxes going for three hundred thousand dollars um you got box crackings on youtube constantly you got logan paul getting involved you got all sorts of venture capital bros uh throwing their hat in the ring and buying up this stuff and you got scams generating news headlines you got logic you got rappers buying pokemon product you have first edition pokemon stuff just going through the roof you got charizards of all stripes making money and then the knock-on effects of that being that the most recent pokemon sets have been you know their version of fat pack what we used to call fat packs um that are called elite trainer boxes that are supposed to retail for like 39.99 to 49.99 going for upwards of a hundred dollars when the first wave sells out in between then and reprint inventory arriving um it's it's just been totally crazy um you got you know san diego comic-con style exclusives that nobody was able to get access to because there was no conventions this year getting sold online and flipped for big money you got lego sets selling out all over the place uh for christmas i got ellie a grand piano from the lego ideas series which is basically people uh submit blueprints for potential lego sets and then if they are voted on by fans and they win they eventually get produced and this grand piano was like 350 us or something and it sold out everywhere and 3400 pieces in this thing and it can play like music off your phone once it's built oh it's i was wondering why that was so expensive but that's why it's, it's a masterpiece like she's gonna she, she's looking to set up a youtube channel uh for her music school so she's gonna build the thing and then put it in the background um mm. and good set dressing yeah so there's you know stuff's been going just totally crazy flesh and blood this game out of from a small design studio in new zealand came out of absolutely nowhere in basically launched 
pre-COVID, but not very far pre-COVID, and basically up until midway through this year, nobody in North America was carrying this game aside from a handful of stores. And now all of a sudden you've got their first edition boxes of their first and second sets, Welcome to Wrath and Arcane Rising, going for you know two to four thousand dollars a piece they've got cards over 10 10 grand i saw some people posting cards up to 40 grand for that game this is a brand new game <laughs> yes no competitive history to speak of more cards are in the hands of speculators than there are in the hands of players uh <laughs> more cards are in the hands of speculators than there are players sure i mean we we bought uh just kind of a, like very speculatively on the basis of this is cheap enough that if we just have to play it at home alone during COVID, so be it, but maybe it'll work out. Did a group buy for that didn't even sell out. Like, I think we, we moved 30 cases or something of crucible of war, which was their third set that debuted in August in North America. And I think in Europe didn't come out till the end of November. And we got crucible boxes at 82. We talked about this last week or the week before. And Last we reported on it, I think I had flipped a case for just under 1600 so about 400 US a box, and was very pleased with myself. This week, they're going for closer to 2600 US. So somewhere between 24 and 2600 So boxes are closing north of 500 US a piece, debatably between 500 and 600 with most of the posts currently somebody just sent me a offer canadian offer 2600 canadian so roughly 2000 us 500 a box for my unsealed box that i got that i just took because my vendor sent me four promos along with my boxes and they opened the case to put the promos in so my case is not sealed anymore and somebody still sent me a two thousand dollar us offer on it which i'm probably going to turn down because i'm pretty sure i can do a few hundred dollars better elsewhere greedy well, I mean, this this whole the thing is that the dynamics are such that we're leading up to their next release in April called Monarch, and Monarch is going to sell the hell out because everybody and their dog wants cases of this now, and their whole strategy of having a first edition wave that has a certain foiling process, cold foils that aren't available anywhere else, and will only ever be printed that one time is a like that's just like. dipping back into this nostalgia of oh i missed out on alpha or beta and then like just coding your product in that and it's been very successful for them uh, because they can still run whatever unlimited print runs they need to of whatever set they produce if it seems like the market demands it as covid retreats and people can finally play in person again but the collectability of those first wave uh boxes is going to be inviolate so if the game survives they've probably got some more room to push even higher i mean the art the boxes that are two to thousand two thousand to four thousand that's going to be hard for them to maintain that p pace especially since they're going to increase their print run as time goes on assuming that COVID allows that to take place on the factory floor but the you know you could see these currently 500 hundred dollar boxes hit a thousand leading into uh monarch in april because there's going to be that hype cycle like there's no product it's not like magic there's no product coming out between now and then (laughs) there's unlimited versions of the earlier sets but that's it and even those have have pumped from about 80 to 100 dollars a box to 130 in in the last week because people are gobbling up that product and the company just can't print fast enough to meet demand 
the the that stuff the flesh and blood is is pretty wild uh a little i guess i'm gonna say hard to have seen coming which i yeah. don't think is unfair oh yeah yeah for sure uh, and, and my so somebody said to me like you know do you, do you do you feel clever in that scenario and i was like absolutely not like no. <laughs> we, we, we took a flyer and it worked mild applause move like don't pat yourself on the back too hard because you could put out a game tomorrow in the same circumstances and i'm again going to assume it's going to fail yeah yeah and like like rightly so like bravo to the people that that went ahead and picked up cases at their local game store at a hundred bucks a box or whatever and now get 20 times returns but i'm happy to always be in the wrong on that level like early adopter on games is so rarely right outside of kickstarters where you know there there have been situations kingdom death comes to mind where getting early access to stuff there has been worth big money Uh, yeah this is one of those times where you're you're happy to have been wrong for the right reasons sure um which is uh, important for people to remember you know the fomo hits hard on something like this but it's like uh you know if you made the right decisions getting into this situation then you shouldn't feel bad that you weren't standing under the lightning when it struck this time. Yeah. So when we're looking, you know, I I go through all of that to provide context to us doing well with picks this year, despite COVID, because, you know, there was a couple weeks there in the spring where we, we declined to even mention cards to watch on the basis that we weren't sure magic was going to be able to, you know, do anything but tank during a period where people were stuck at home. Now, it turns out we were wrong. Um, And as we have seen with many entertainment properties in the past, the, you know, in in a case where even in in a strong recessionary period, you know, like 2008, 2009, Magic has done well um, because booze, cigarettes, movie theater tickets outside of COVID... Uh, and in, during COVID, at-home entertainment has all done well because those are the only options to spend money. I mean, my family would normally go on two to three vacations a year. We've gone on zero since COVID, obviously. And so even though you know there is some financial pressure for a lot of households, some, some of that pressure is counterbalanced by the inability to spend money in ways that you normally would. Spending less on eating out, spending less on food, spending less on travel, um, you know, you might be household income might be down forty percent, but if your expenses are down forty five, you got a little extra to play with. Yeah, and I mean, I would hope that if your household income is down forty five percent, that you have not been buying magic cards. Um, <laughs> that although that would fit in with the uh, economic sense of the larger magic player base. I mean, it really, it really uh, depends. If you're at twenty, if you're living on the edge at twenty thousand, yeah, you shouldn't be spending money on collectibles at all. If you're at a hundred thousand, you're knocked down to sixty, but your household this income is still combined over a hundred or something between you and your spouse, and and again, your expenses are way down. You could you could easily justify it. Well, I don't think anyone who's making a hundred thousand combined had their expenses dropped by forty percent. Like, I don't know how that would happen. Um. But whatever, that is like, not really the point. It's neither here nor there. I, I remember spending I, a lot of time looking at, there was uh, articles in Wired, like a ways back down the road that I remember reading, where they were breaking down how budgets were made up in urban versus rural environments. 
And in cities like San Francisco, New York, LA, Toronto, London, Tokyo, etc., it's a really big portion of your budget that goes to rent, clothes, eating out, and travel. And your rent, obviously, <laughs> didn't go down during this period. But those other three things, it's almost impossible to spend that money. Uh, obviously, on the travel, I don't think that's true of eating out. Well, I mean, we... I think. I think plenty of people easily could have made the decision to just order out more than they would have because it's sort of a comfort factor. See, we were in the opposite position. Like we're in, we're in the group of households where we order in less because it's just a risk. Like why have yet like a person coming to my door every day that might potentially infect us. So we go out and pick stuff up occasionally, like once a week, but we used to eat out every day. Like I, I used to eat out twice a day. So you know, that, that there's been huge savings there for us. We figured out we're, we're saved like 15 grand this year. I'm Yeah, and I'm sure it depends. I mean, you and I live in very different dynamic social situations, despite only being a couple hours, you know, an hour and a half away from each other. Um, you know, for us, takeout is very easy. I just walk out, hop in my car, drive to the restaurant. They walk it out the front door and just hand me a plastic bag that I paid for and ordered online. So like there's virtually no exposure and at a time where like you know we don't get to do anything fun anymore it's an easy diversion to do that type of thing um I, it makes sense that if you live in a major urban environment the mm. risk overhead of something like that is much higher um but the number of cities where that's the case in america is like four sure uh I, it, but the, 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 this is all you know is is i guess I don't know. At least I'm just kind of talking out of my butt. It's intu- It's in- I'm intuiting some things, but I don't know any of this for sure. To make from a top-down perspective is that help the collectibles market. And not for everybody equally. Obviously, if you're in a lower income jeopardy, um, but for the whales, they've been busily consuming collectibles. And, yeah, and, and, and that we have seen that echo through pretty much every aspect of the collectible sphere, from video games and, on over to TCGs, comics, sports cards, the whole thing. The, you're right. This is absolutely correct. And, you know, this sort of, it feels like... Um, was a uh, magnifying effect for Wizards' desire to already move into a more whale-based distribution model. And it's, you know, at a personal level, I find it all a little distasteful. Um, It's distressing to see the game shift, not just Magic, but collectibles in general, shift so hard towards catering to not the 1%, but definitely the 5%. Um, and you know this the the COVID, COVID has only magnified that because the people who are already in pretty good shape probably didn't experience significant economic duress, um, whereas the people who weren't the top earners in their cities were the most likely to be um, hit by this. So it sucks for the people who needed it to not suck, um, and it's 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 just a, a, a another shift similar to all the other shifts we we continue to see that. I don't, I don't care for, um, but I mean, ultimately that's, uh, doesn't really impact what we're doing here. We're just, you know, following the data as it is. And, you know, this is what we see. 
Uh, there's definitely an uptick in demand for the highest level at the market. And the bottom level and the mid-level has essentially just disappeared. Well, I, I would argue that while Magic is certainly living, we are all living in the era of premium Magic, that in no way has that actually represented an abandonment of the larger, broader, lower spending part of their sales pyramid. Um, there's basically no evidence that that's the case. In fact, what's actually happening is they've made the lower end that much cheaper. Regular versions of cards tend to be cheaper because premium versions uh, available in uh, current product formulations push the price of those things down. So if you, for instance, if you look at something like a Zendikar uh, booster box, because it always comes with a non-foil expedition, that's going to push, you know, 20 to 25 dollars worth of ev out of the rest of the box and make those cards cheaper they've also done this thing where by increasing the foil drop rate and giving alternate premiums vis-a-vis collector boosters vips etc all the time um regular foils have been basically knocked down to basically worthless so if you were a foil collector you're living in paradise your your foils are way way cheaper than they used to be you can be on if you want to play with all foil decks in standard instead of regular decks you can get those for basically the same price now and that was never the well, case in the past no and it, it uh it's not to say that magic has gotten more expensive at the lower end it's more that wizard's attention is paid almost entirely to the top end well i mean but but uh, but how fair point but what what versions of products would you uh design or offer to that segment that they don't already do i well i don't know i mean i i don't have an immediate answer for that um and this is just more of a a a broad a broad impression where magic 10 years ago was it felt like a more Egalitarian is the wrong word. The distribution of value was a lot more even, right? Like your rare lands were 10 or 15 bucks, five to five to 15 bucks. Uh, there was no super high end. And it, it I guess it, I, I don't, I don't know exactly how th- that plays out for the budget players today. I mean, I agree that a lot of the stuff is much cheaper than it used to be. Um, it's more accessible in some ways, but the game's attention has has shifted, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't know if this is better or worse for the uh, budget-minded player, or if I just feel like I'm seeing parallels in Magic with other aspects of society that makes me uneasy. I, I don't know for sure. I know that it leaves a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, and I'm having d- difficulty putting my finger on exactly what it is. I think what you're actually pointing at is a social divide more than a financial one. I don't think that people are being locked out of access to magic, but they are locked out of what might be perceived to be the coolest parts of the culture. If, I, I, if, I definitely did not imply, I'm definitely not trying to say that people are locked out of the playing the game because I don't think that's true. I think that's less true today than it ever has been. But there might be a social divide in the sense that if everyone's talking about collector booster boxes, but you can't afford them, then you are locked out of what you might perceive to be the most fun experience available. 
Yeah, and I don't even want to claim that that's like making people an injured party because I don't think that's the case either, and I don't want to be put in the position of trying to defend that. Uh, it's it's more just it feels like a turning the dial towards the 1% more than it has been. Well, there's certainly been other arguments <clears throat> uh, offered up on social media. Uh, our friend Daniel Fournier, for instance, uh, and his raging socialism um, would has and others have also echoed this pointed fingers at the mining of whales as problematic as though that wizards through the offering of things like vip booster packs was actually abusing the people that have deep pockets uh i'm not sure i'm willing to take up that stance much beyond the the self-evident fact that booster packs are not very far removed from lottery tickets and that they do have the potential through uh, the the small, you know, rush achieved by opening a good pack to encourage bad habits. And that there are, have always been, and probably still are, some people that spend too much, like more than they can afford or more than they should in that way. The only thing I would... I would be able to offer up as counter to that is that if I have to choose between someone being addicted to cigarettes, booze, scratch tickets, or magic, it's magic for, you know, it's not even close because well, w- one of the things that's interesting is a collector booster box. Sure. It's $200, but you're probably going to get at least $150 in value there. I, I mean, the, the Dan's point here, and I'm, you know, I'm, and put in the unenviable position of speaking for him is um is that it's exploitative of the type of people of a specific type of person and uh i you know when you say it's the the similarity between a booster pack and a lottery ticket is evident i self-evident i don't i don't i don't agree with that i actually think that it's it's masked reasonably well um if it weren't quite so if it were more obvious, parents might have more of an issue with their kids getting into this type of thing. Um, I think they've done a pretty good job of disguising that aspect. And I think the exploitative part here, like, would you rather have somebody addicted to buying magic cards and be an alcoholic? Well, sure. There's no question about that. I think the the question here, though, is you're teaching a very different crowd how to be addicted to something and, and, and t- getting them used to uh, addiction behavior patterns. Fair point. Um, which sets them up to fall into more traps later in life. But, you know, we're not worried about, a, a, not really worried about a 13-year-old becoming addicted to drinking, but it's easy for them to get addicted to gambling because of, you know, magic and what that teaches them. Well, and loot box culture is being called out in Europe, you know, yeah. vis-a-vis, you know, vis-a-vis fresh legislation and there will be further uh changes needed in the industry to adapt to that and it's it it will be curious it will be curious to see if magic gets caught up in any of it along the way yeah we could see a pretty significant change in as you said loot box culture uh in the next decade or so depending on how all that shakes out the loot boxes could be a thing of the past by the time you hit like 2030. It would be nice to see, but all I mean, of this is sort of secondary. Don't, don't even get me started about how I haven't bought a good mobile game in forever because the entire mobile game industry is is leaning on addicted whales gotcha. and doesn't produce any good games as a result. 
It's all gotcha games. Yep. So, anyway, the the point of all Magic of that nerds. back background uh, context was to set up that it's been an explosive year for collectibles. COVID has uh, created unique uh, dynamics in the Magic marketplace. We've got competitive cards. You know, you mentioned Pioneer cards going nowhere, basically because the format only got to get played for four months before people had to stop. Um, nobody's playing modern in paper. Nobody's playing standard in paper outside of like New Zealand and pockets in Japan. And EDH has been towing the line. So it's a good thing they put out a bunch of EDH product this year because that's the only format anyone's been able to play via, you know, via online webcam. I am impressed that Magic has proven as resilient as it seems to have been so far in terms of people stockpiling cards to play with later. You know, for every person that's playing Commander on webcam, there's probably 10 others that aren't that are still buying cards and building decks and levering that side of the hobby. The, the, the fact that it is fun to research and build Commander decks at home, that that is an activity that can keep you busy is a big part of why this game did not collapse this year. Yes. The sort of the meta community around the game, the organizing your cards, the shuffling them in and out of sleeves, the building decks, the, you know, buying new dice and what have you all adds a definite value to the game and a way to sort of engage with it. Even when you can't really engage with it, um, and I think a lot of people are lucky to have that aspect of the game available to them because other games that are a little more shallow probably have seen way less engagement because it's just less fun to have an excuse to handle your stuff. And, and it's a big difference between that and, say, some other sports hobbies you might have. Like, I like to play pickup basketball. Haven't played all year. Where am I going to play? Safely? Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> I see people doing it, but they're, they're ridiculous fools. Uh, we were just up at the cottage for Christmas, and went to take a peek at the hill at blue mountain down the road, which is the biggest hill in the area and they're closed. So <laughs> won't be doing any skiing this year. So all, all our skiing and snowboard gear is just going to sit in the closet and wouldn't be safe to go probably anyway. So even if they were open, so, you know, it's, it's a, in some ways lucky to have a hobby that for not so much money, cause I'd still maintain that, you know, you get to pick your, how much you want to spend on magic. Uh, you can fool around at home with your cards and and fill up some of your time. So all that being said, let's take a look at how we did this year uh, in the cards to watch. Um, we did roll up pretty much all our picks for the entire year, got a sense of two main data points. The buy price that we called out, which would have been TCG near mint uh for the most part. So the lowest priced near mint copy is usually what we're focused on as long as it's not a single copy well below the rest. So if a card is mostly at $40 and it's a single copy at $35, we're going to call that a $40 card. Sometimes it means we're calling out a magic card, a cardmarket.com price in Europe. Sometimes it means we called out a price in Japan, uh, and that's all denoted in the uh, data tracking sheet. And overall, uh, you know, looking at my picks for the year, pretty solid. Um, only out of 158 picks tracked, the buy-in price of my entire basket, if you bought just a single copy of everything, which keep in mind is not how we recommend you do this. I would much rather people be discarding 
two out of three of my picks and and just going in on the one that they think is the best of the bunch. But even if you did buy one of everything, you're looking at a $4,100 basket that is, if you either got out now or if there was a previous peak that was at least sustained for a little bit, we used that. Um, my basket would have gone to 69.24, which is 68% gains overall. And then only seven of my 158 picks went definitively down. So 4.4% of the callouts. 25% uh, plus ROI was on 96 of 158 picks. So 60% of my picks were good for at least 25% returns within a year. Uh, and some of them significantly higher given if they were picked in the latter half of the year but haven't been annualized, that gets even better. And then 50% plus ROI was on 46% of picks, so 73 out of 158. Overall, those are impressive numbers. Um, I think it would be hard to argue otherwise. Uh, on my side of things, it was uh, probably slightly more muted. If you, I, I do find it amusing that if you bought one of every single card that I talked about, you paid fourteen hundred dollars. <laughs> and what did you put yours at? Forty five hundred. Forty one hundred. Yeah, I'm not, so, so my, not exactly my, my clear average call out is my average call out is four times more expensive than yours. Do you, have a, do you, I, you must have like one or you have like a I think you have like a couple of beta cards in there. But uh, it, it, it's like also that I there, there's a lot of weeks where I pick three and you pick two. Mm -hmm. So so that throws things off too. Yeah, that is true. Although even if you account for that, I still don't catch up. Um, my, and my total end value is a little over 1900 So I, I had about a 30% overall uh, growth on picks. Um, I had, looks to be about 20-ish cards that sat flat. Um, that, like truly didn't move. Well, let me rephrase that. I had, oh, let's say 45. I had about 50-ish picks that were like zero to 40% growth. So um, some some movement upwards, but uh, not enough to basically be worth selling. looks like I only had about three or four cards that definitively dropped, um, which I'm pretty pleased with. It might be a couple more than that, but oh, I, it's not a lot. So I, I'm, I'm pleased that I was able to keep the real misses. Oh, this one isn't even supposed to show up here. That's a... Um, that's a, an error in the numbers. So only a couple that really went down. And I think they were, you know, my, my the worst of my stuff tended to float around the pioneer zone. They were cards that I talked about in like February and March. Then they were like, oh, you should consider this if this deck keeps mm -hmm. doing well in modern. And guess how many decks kept doing well in modern after March? Yeah. Can, um, can, I, you, give us some, I can do... you give us some examples from that, that subset of the worst? Oh, yeah, like so, like I, I mystical dispute was kind of messy. Um, that was a foil, the foil from Throne of Eldraine. I called at eight dollars, and uh, that never went up. And let me look at the graph for that so I can give you an accurate. I think that just went down, right? Yeah. So I, you know, I recommended though Throne of Eld mystical dispute because it was in fifty forty five percent of Pioneer decks at the time. It was March eleventh. Um, and that was $8 foils. And today they are like a three fifty or something like that. So not a great turnaround on those. Um, and like I said, there's a, a handful of those, but that's the type of card I'm looking at when I'm looking at the bottom end up on the top end. I have 
three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven cards that really stood out, I think, as successes. Eleven cards out of just about a hundred. So about 10% of my picks were good. They were like at least 100% or otherwise good value return. Um, a couple of them in the hundreds to 300% return. Uh, I'm amused that my best pick of the year seemed to be read the bones. Because <laughs> I said you could get foils at a dollar and they're now like five bucks. So not a, like it's kind of a, an obnoxious uh, price increase, like the one, the five range we've decried multiple times, but it worked out that time. Um, and then had two Zyrus picks that really hit high hard, which was kind of funny too. Uh, but, and then plenty of other stuff that floated in like the 60 to hundred percent range. I think like a third of my list was essentially enough of a profit that you could sell it enough of an improvement that you could sell it for a profit. Mm-hmm. Looking at the bottom end of my list, we've got most of the stuff that is so far has tanked since called is Zendikar Rising stuff that I called too early. Given uh, the increased print run of the Zendikar Rising collector boosters and the fact that they were very scarce for a couple of weeks in October set up some expectations that were then proved too ambitious six weeks later when the inventory had filled in and in fact we saw boxes of zendikar rising collector boosters as low as 160 i suspect like in the last couple weeks on facebook i suspect that there are still lots of boxes in distributor hands that are eventually going to get dumped it's possible that we will see them as low as 150 160 again in the near future um, as we did with uh theros beyond death collector booster boxes the difference is the Zenagar Rising Collector Booster Boxes are a lot deeper <laughs> in terms of overall hits. And the fact that you tend to average two foil expeditions and two non-foil expeditions in those gives them a very solid anchor for the long term. Even if you discount the enemy fetches from the perspective that they are going to make an appearance again in Modern Horizons 2, almost certainly as premiums again. Um, there's still a lot, a lot of value in the expeditions that, and a ton of double face cards that are going to show strong growth over time and some very strong mythics. So stuff like Scourge of the Skyclaves, calling it at 10 to go to 22 and it got down to 825. Uh, Omnath, Locus of Creation Showcase is called at 30 to go to 50, but now you can get them at 20. Uh, Valakut Awakening Foil Extended Art, uh, called at nine to go to 18. You can get them at six right now. Valakut Exploration, called at three to go to 10. You can get them at $1.29 for the showcase foils. And Scourge, uh, of the Skyclaves non-foils, sorry, we're at 10 going to 22, available at eight. The Foil Extended Arts called at 40 to go to 80. You can get them at 17. I'm actually a buyer on most of those at current pricing because it's just that much more attractive. So hopefully you uh, followed my advice to work the ramp where you don't buy huge piles all at once. If you think you're going to be in a little early, you dabble and then move in harder when you think it hits a real low. Um, in a lot of those cases, you've got good opportunities. A lot of other stuff just stayed totally flat. It's things that, you know, some of my constructed picks that are flat, things like uh, Damping Sphere, Mausoleum Wanderer, Scrap Heap Scrounger foils, Steam Vents foils, just stuff that hasn't been under any specific pressure and 
you know, some of that stuff is going to do very well once paper rega- regains traction, and some of it's just going to get left behind. Like, Scrap Keep Scrounger seemed like a very reasonable pioneer aggro card uh, up front, but may just get knocked out of the format entirely by the time paper resumes. Well, one thing that we didn't really do here is control for the um, the time frame. So, you know, I can look at my stuff that's in the the lower value change so like here's a block of like 10 cards in a row that are all basically zero percent price change and they're all from october november and even this month so like yeah it's not surprising that there's not value improvements on those but that's because i called them a month or two months ago and the time frame on all these is six to 12 months so if, if you were to cut out all of our cards that essentially haven't reached our proposed maturation points the numbers get even better um, considerably so, I think, given that like they will carry a lot of weight in that like buy price that we talk about, the total value of buying everything, but drag down the total reward at the end. So a bunch of stuff I've got in the five to fifteen percent return range, which I don't really consider actionable. You're you're in waiting mode. Everything from like Ashiok Dream Render stained glass, Avenger of Zendikar foils. Uh, Leyline of the Void foils from M or non foils from M20, the Ozolith EAs, um, you know, called them from 20 to 35. They're stuck at 22. They'll get there eventually, but they need some time. Soren Imperious Bloodlord foils 15 to 30, stuck at 17. These are just things that are early on in their curves and need some more time to mature. Now, at the very uh, top end of mine, we've got a couple of interesting themes. I'd say the two biggest ones are that when we told people to go in on Japanese War of the Spark foil animated planeswalkers in late May, early June, that was a very good call in the Pro Trader Discord. You got things like one of my top movers of the year is Gideon Black Blade animated uh, foil, anime foil. You could get them at 30 or 40 when we called it. And. There's only two copies listed on TCG Player right now. Lowest price copy is $350. So you're talking about even if you had to knock 100 off to actually get it sold, you're still talking about, you know, five to ten time returns depending on you know what price you got in at. Now this makes me remember something here that I want to claim an asterisk because I have like three picks in Europe on my list, my entire yearly list. And you have like, probably I'm going to guess like 40%. And those are, those are very favorable numbers for you <laughs> because your, your recommended buy price is essentially is, is uh, you started out below TCG low when you were recommending those. Uh, so those are uh, good news for you basically. Sure. But, and if someone has no access to Europe because they don't have access, they don't live in Europe, they don't know anybody in Europe or they're not a pro trader then those picks have always been may as well be fancy like magical christmas land because they don't matter to those people so that's certainly worth considering but these are very real prices that are are in fact very attainable and and between personal access group buy access or access via a relationship you set up a reciprocal relationship you set up with somebody in europe um, they are in fact quite actionable i don't mean to imply that they're not real I just mean to imply that it makes your numbers look better than mine. (laughs) 
Well, because I'm that was <laughs> I'm doing the research and picking, the, telling people to buy them in the right place. The uh, well, now if you look at the, but if you look at the stuff that I have, that's fifty percent plus. Very little of it is Europe related. A lot of the stuff is USA based. Like the price, quoted prices for these uh, anime walkers were all US prices. And the other big theme in here is foil extended arts, which occasionally look cheaper in Europe. But one of the things we've seen in the last few months is that as prices have risen in Europe and the US dollar has fallen against the euro, a lot of that stuff hasn't been as cheap as it would have been nine months ago. So, for instance, with a lot of the Commander Legends uh, foil extended arts, they were actually more expensive in Europe than they were in the US in recent weeks. Uh, And there just hasn't been as much opportunity to call out for things to be uh, targeted in Europe. Uh, but I would certainly say that the premium side of things, the foil extended arts, uh, rares and mythics especially, from Eldraine forward is the other big theme in in my winners. You've got things like uh, Torbran, Thane of Red Fell. Um, you got Shark Typhoons, called them at 17, they go to 30, they're at 48 now. Um, Luminous Broodmoth, Mothra, also called Ghidorah. These were called out at 25 and 40 uh, back in June and peaked at 70 and 100 respectively. You've got uh, Mirrored Lotus from the Mystery Booster stuff going from called to go 25 to 40. It's at, currently at 62. Um, you've got a smattering of Modern Horizons specs like Eladomri's Call Foils to go 5 to $10, currently at 12 and headed up. You've got uh, at, some Judge promos. Um, that's also been a, a steady provider. Avis and Angel of Hope, Judge Foil promo called in April, late April, to go 60 to 85, currently sitting at 130. Uh, Oko Thief of Crowns from uh, Throne of Eldraine called uh, May 26th to go 60 to 100, currently sitting at 123 and headed north. And so on and so forth. Um, lots of stuff like that that is scarcity driven i mean scarcity has been the focus of my mtg finance uh regime for years and will continue to be so because in every uh corner of the collectible sphere scarcity is what drives price sure and i mean that's a those are good angles to approach um i think you're obviously going to see success when you're specifically going after stuff that's going to be uh, gonna really gonna resist having uh, flooding the market um just by virtue of there just isn't enough out there to do that i i found that mine don't seem to fit too tight a pattern um they're kind of all over the bo- board like i said i have to read the bones there uh at the top of the list um two of my picks were from just in fact non-foils uh and, and so now that i say that out loud amusingly enough I have a real affinity for picking foils and I think we both do. But as I'm looking at my like 10 best, several of my best gainers here, it's heavily non-foil. In fact, out of my top 15, it's one, two, three, four, five, six of them are non-foil, which is very overrepresented when you look at my picks on a weekly basis, um, which are definitely more than that percentage in foil. Um, I also notice that they tend to float in the same general price point, which is like the five to ten dollar range. Um, buying of eight, buying a five, five fifty, a dollar, seven, four, four, five, seven, eight fifty, forty five, 
11 to 25. So definitely all in that sort of bulk to kind of get in at a, at a $5 bill and then flip it for about triple that um, seems to be where I've seen the most success, which isn't surprising. I think, you know, if you look at magic cards as a whole, you get very good price movements in the several dollars to teens um, is, is a good spot. The other position I think is usually in the low teens to the mid twenties <laughs> is another good uh, price point to try and attack. Um, and I had some success in there too, but a little, those are a little further down the list. In fact, everything in like my 15 through 35th is hanging in the much more in that like high teens, low twenties to flip up higher. So those are in like the 50 to 80% improvement uh, returns. There's definitely, I think a tendency difference between the two of us that you are hungry for a $2 card to hit 15, like 10 to 15. You're looking for those big, big multipliers. Whereas I'm entirely comfortable chasing $20 cards that will become 40 on the basis of low supply and not going as deep. Like I, I don't care if I have 50 copies of something. I'm happy to have a handful of 20s that go to 40 and get that double up. And it is reflected actually in my personal tracking too. Because of course this isn't even a great representation of what how you and I would do personally. Because this is the stuff we prepare on Tuesdays. Anything that happens the other six days of the week either gets discussed to death in the ProTrader Discord or just ends up not, you know, if there's an opportunity on Thursday and it's gone by Saturday morning, then it's not going to show up in our list for the week. So a lot of the, the you know, good stuff that happened during the year doesn't show up in these lists. And you can see the difference because, you know, my Tuesday picks, supposedly this is roughly 50% or so, maybe, uh, sorry, 70%. But my personal stuff, tracking ROI from my actual sales for the year, over tens of thousands of dollars of sales, is closer to 90%. And actually, I haven't annualized that yet, so it will be even higher when I'm done. Um, and that makes sense as well, because of the, you know, the things I actually sell doesn't account for things that are sitting in the bad spec box, and things I actually sell is having the freedom to make picks on any given day of the week at any given moment. Now, I don't keep track of my personal specs like that because I don't want to look. It's, an, it's, more, it's more fun to gloss over my misses and focus on the feel good about the good stuff that sells. And, and not, and not <laughs> everybody has the time to do it anyway, you, even if they did. Yeah, even let's, if they did let's go with that as being the reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can't speak to my specific performances like that. I know they're better than the 30 or 40% that this sheet represents. Um, I do I do agree with you that I have a slightly different approach in the picks that I put on the cast. I mean, if only because I really, you know, I, I still find the idea of buying a, a stack of $2 cards and getting to flip them for 15 because some commander sent it crazy. Like that's exciting. Like I want to be able to pull that off and I'm still going to chase that high a little bit. Um, so I definitely am inclined to lean in that direction, uh, which is represented here in a lot of my picks. And some of them are a little dicier, although, and that's another thing too, by the way, that the sheet doesn't fully reflect is, you know, when I put, sometimes I'll put a pick of the week on and I'll say, Hey, look, like I have a, um, uh, what is it? 
rally the ancestors on here, which I think went down. And it's like, yeah, that went down. But if you had, you know, if you look at my notes, I'm talking about it being good in um, Luris, Abzan, Aristocrat, which I think was before Luris got banned. And, you know, it was a good in Pioneer. And I probably would have said, like, sure, this is great in this deck as long as this keeps moving and the companions don't get banned. So I could take that with a grain of salt. So, like, the just discussion of the card would have warranted caution and additional uh, research and consideration that's not reflected in just two or three numbers on the spreadsheet. So, um, and I think that's true for both of us that it doesn't, the numbers don't reflect our prudence on some of these. Now, one of the other things that I would I would table as counter pressure that uh, some might think should bring the success success measurements down further is that we're not using all today's pricing. We're using peak pricing, assuming the peak was real, because we're using uh, we used TCG market peaks to figure out what your best possible exit is. But that doesn't mean you got that exit. So for instance, if you bought foil Ghidorahs when I did in May in Europe at $30 and you sold them on eBay like I did at $100 plus, you did very, very well. But today, Ghidorah, you know, a few months later, Ghidorahs actually fell once they were out of the spotlight. So if you held them too long and bought them in North America, you could be just at parity on that card. And that's true of at least a, you know a dozen maybe maybe you know somewhere between fifteen and twenty picks on here where you had to buy it in the right place and sell it at the right time to get the numbers that I'm suggesting were achieved here. If you didn't buy it at the right place and you didn't sell it at the right time, then your your results are going to be very different. Oh yeah, I mean that's true for both of us. That these are. Uh ideal numbers these were these were where we told you to buy it and the best time to have sold it and a lot of financial data is going to look really good if you only consider it if you had sold it at the best time yeah. possible B- B- bitcoin, uh, bitcoin you're a, comes you're to a mind big, you're a bitcoin billionaire <laughs> if, yes. if you've only bought and sold at the correct times by the way twenty eight thousand seven fifty right now my friend that means that my black lotus trade is finally in the black yeah, fine. Point, well, there point, you go. That's appropriate. 0.43 Bitcoin for a SP uh, unlimited Black Lotus basically means that I have, what, 12,500 or something worth of Bitcoin in exchange for that Lotus now, which is finally makes me look reasonably smart on that trade. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I suppose we could, we could talk about Bitcoin again, maybe in a, next week or something like that might be worth poking our heads into again one more time i'll, I'll but, put it to you this way uh, if you want to buy cards from me and pay bitcoin i'm taking <laughs> really oh yeah you're a buyer at twenty nine thousand. Yep. Okay. i not not because i don't think it can go back down it absolutely can i watched it go from twenty thousand to three thousand i know it's possible yep. but i believe that yep. the upward trend minus any legislative interference is very likely to be positive given given the current set of circumstances and dynamics i okay i will avoid engaging here just because that seems like it's a topic for another week um yeah so i i I don't know i i think you know you will post the numbers they're there for people to look at i don't know if there's anything specific people wanted us to hit on in consideration of all this stuff but i feel like if you followed our advice 
um, it worked out reasonably well for you. Uh, probably didn't, it, it should not have gone poorly unless you bought the absolute worst cards and sold them at the worst times. And given that we outline what price points we're shooting for, um, I think that that's fair too, because we're saying like, look, if you bought this at five and you can sell it for 12, then like, maybe you should take that. Um, you know, you don't have to be, get the, you don't have to be that greedy. Like you can, you can be happy to take your profits as opposed to just saying, buy this at five and it'll go up. And then you miss your window to sell it because you, you know, for whatever reason, and then you go, oh, well, you know, I should have sold it, but you know, I only had the, the right time to do that. I'd be like, well, yeah, but that's why we told you at what price point you should consider selling. Yeah. I mean, if I was going to give some follow on advice to interacting with cards to watch and other content creators, similar content, it would go something like, make sure you understand what your limitations are, both in terms of depth of wallet and time structure your interactions with MTG finance accordingly. If you are a super busy, you know, professional slash got a family or whatever, or an active social life, whatever, and you only have a relatively small amount of time, then you're probably more on the collector side of things. You should keep things simple. You should take action infrequently, only when something really strikes you as a very clear and present opportunity, either to get something cheap that you need for your deck, like when I called out Oko, Thief of Crowns, Foil Borderless at 60, that's the moment you know, that you should have what copy you want for your cube or or legacy deck, vintage deck, or whatever. If you are on the hustle, then apply, you know, you're constantly looking for opportunities. You have both time and money to devote, either because you're a professional in the collectible sphere, or because you, like me, have a dedicated side hustle where you're going to spend 15 to 20 hours a week on this stuff consistently. Then use that two-thirds rule. Just cut, cut out you know, if we table five or six picks a week, cut it down to one or two, go after the stuff that seems to make the most sense, has the biggest supply challenges and the steepest curves and can be sourced in quantity. Get involved in Pro Trader. Take a look at our group buys. It's only 80 bucks a year. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. The, stuff like the, the Crucible of War deal or any number of the dozens of singles deals we did this year or sealed product deals will easily pay for that stuff. And whether you do it with us or with somebody else, if you're interested in it, consider getting involved at that level because for a relatively minor amount of money, you can get into position to have access to a network of people that know other things that you don't know, even if you think you're very well educated. They have contacts overseas. They can get you, they can cut you in on deals. They can share shipping costs with you. There's all sorts of different things that people in the community can do to increase your yield whether that is results in terms of the cards you get for your collection or actual cash um, that's going to supplement your income if you are networking in that way and leveraging all the tools that are at your disposal uh, i think that was, that's all good advice um and i will speak specifically here to the uh the difference in how you choose to engage with the the game because I don't think it's your, your numbers on paper look and, and not just look they are better 
than mine. Like you, you talk about you, you overall, you recommend that people purchase a higher value of cards, but your ROI was higher and I'm sure your ROI on the sheet was higher and I'm sure your ROI personal personally was higher. Um, and it probably won't also won't surprise our listeners that you spend more hours a week engaged in magic finance. And I do, you said yourself, you're at like 15 to 20 hours dedicated. And you know, I'm at probably a third of that on a good week sometimes. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not telling you guys, this is an excuse, but to illustrate a difference, um, in availability. So I have to pick and choose my battles differently than you do. And like, you know, you were just talking about the flesh and blood. We were talking about that off cast like last week and about how successful it was and how you felt like there was still opportunities. And I'm like, I no, like I'm, I, I think it's great for, for you guys who are able to be involved in this much more on a daily basis than I'm able to dedicate to it. And it seems like there's some good opportunities, but the amount of information tracking that I have to keep up with on something like that, when we're talking about buying hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars of sealed product, um, is a, is a pretty significant overhead if you're not already positioned to be doing that type of work. So like, I don't feel bad about leaving stuff like that on the table because it just requires time that I'm not able to invest. Um, so you, so you shouldn't feel bad, I guess, if you're profit margins are lesser than other individuals, if you just don't have the time to invest in it. When I was, you know, living in an apartment and not a house and I wasn't married and I didn't have a child and I spent way more hours per week thinking and playing magic. My returns were great because I could be on top of everything all the time yeah. and like was was really good at like, at, you know, knowing what to flip and when to flip it and like how to trade correctly and like all that type of stuff. And, um, you know, I just don't have the bandwidth for that anymore. And honestly, I, I will tell you the thing that, that hit my time the hardest was buying a house because I lived in an apartment all that time beforehand where, so I didn't do anything to it. Right. Like, and this is, you still do live in an apartment. You're up in Toronto, real estate's insane. So you pay rent. Like you're not really, you have to keep, you have to obviously keep your house in order, but like you're not investing time into improving the infrastructure of your home, of your home, uh, so that leaves your time much more free like my time was when I lived in an apartment. I still played too many video games at the time, but I had a lot of time for other pursuits. Ever since I bought this house, which is an older house, I have been very busy and sunk in a ton of hours into maintaining it um, and improving it, which is I'm sure some of our listeners will be very familiar with and some of our listeners will know nothing about. And overall, is my time better spent doing that work than having spent on magic? Probably. I think the ROI generally is probably higher on housework, especially because uh, paying people to do work on your house is insane, especially if you are doing smaller ball stuff. Like if you have a $50,000 project you want to do on your house, it's not too hard to get somebody to come and work on it because it's worth their time to do a job that big. But if you have $600 worth of work you want done on your house, they will charge you $3,000 because they don't want to bother to come to your house to only do $600 worth of work. In the same way that we tell you not to try and flip 50 cent cards to $2 cards because the overhead involved for the profit sure. is obnoxious. Um, so my point being just that we all have different levels at which we engage with it. And you have to remember that um, your time invested does have an impact in both ways. But like, if you have the time, it can be, 
that's great and you can go after it. But at the same time, if you don't have the hours available to you in your daily life, you shouldn't feel bad about leaving some of this on the table because there is a demand on your time that if you can't provide, it will burn you. And that comes in the form of like not selling cards when you're supposed to because you weren't up to date in the discord and finding out what's going on. So, you know, don't 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 feel bad if you can't put 20 hours a week into it either. And the flip side of that coin is you go back to our conversation with Ellie of the Veil about talking about being in a situation where, you know, she's got a lot of student debt, doesn't really have that much money to, to throw at MTG Finance either. And so she agonized over, you know, should I do this or that or this? And spending a lot of time in the decision bubble. Whereas someone like me, who's been infinite for a long time on MTG Finance and can basically get whatever I want whenever I want to with whatever's sitting on my PayPal account, because I know it's going to be replenished the very next day through some fresh bevy of sales, I'm just biting off whatever seems reasonable four or five, six times a day. You need to understand what your what your position is and be comfortable with that. If, if you are just dabbling, then dabble. Like we tell, like if, if somebody comes to an ProTrader and says, I'm just getting into this, first advice we give them is don't do anything. Don't buy anything. Don't participate in any group buys. <laughs> just kick back and watch absorb we have you know the the mtg price icon that we put on the most what we think is the most valuable content generated by staff mods and or other pro traders throughout every given day and we encourage people to just you know if you only got a little bit of time at least read those posts and you'll be mostly up to speed um do that for a while and then start to figure out how you fit into the whole mix are you the kind of person that buys and flips collections are you the kind of person that you know has a cousin in spain that's going to hook you up with the european arbitrage do you travel a lot to japan for work when outside of covid are you a really good competitive player that can identify card power levels really well you know, what, what is your niche? What, what is going to help you achieve whatever your goals are, whether you're trying to build a bigger collection or you want to play the game for less, or you want to make some money on the side, you know, we can help with all that, but you got to understand that, you know, even though our community is, you know, fairly tight knit at this point inside pro trader, we got like a thousand people working together on this stuff. Um, you know, everybody has, has different requirements, different dynamics, different, factors in play different budgets and timelines and expectations in terms of results and so even though you might respect what somebody suggests to you it might not be right for you and you've got to be totally okay with that yeah and that there's probably an entire uh segment for there to discuss um to ellie's point uh about kind of the decision paralysis and how it's we have you and i personally and probably a lot of the discord too has enough experience here that like, I don't typically have to belabor decisions very much. I can look at something and relative, like once I feel like I, I can gather some data and once I have it, I feel capable of making a decision relatively quickly, but I don't second guess myself too much. I think I second guess myself more than you do, but less than most other people, especially more casual listeners do. Um, and that can be a real trap for people um, in terms of the time invested because you just you don't have the wealth of knowledge and experience to get to understand or be comfortable with the decisions and what the, they mean or may not mean and the losses that may come with it and you're worried about the losses and so I just, just stuff like that can really weigh on you as well and it, it's kind of a quiet time thief that we're not su subject to as much as as 
you may be. So keep that in mind too. And that's okay, right? Like it took me a long time to get here. And it makes like, you are investing time to get to become knowledgeable about anything. Be a great tennis player. You want to be an architect. You want to be great at MCG finance. You're going to have to put in the time. And how much time you put in will depend on how focused your efforts are to get up to speed. Because you need to have all the skills. You don't need to have your finger on the pulse of Japanese to Europe to North American arbitrage cycles to do well in MCG finance. You can be a dude that just operates, you know, like DJ at his college, uh, you know, just being the guy that had the cards, you know, basically being the de facto store on campus and being able to fuel 20 30 40 people's debt flip them out to other people in his immediate area that's all he needed to get off the ground and get get rolling well what i think i think about is um you know to kind of flip the table is uh the stock market i don't dabble in stocks at all and i know a lot about magic finance and i understand the principles of finance and that type of thing but if i wanted to start getting in stocks tomorrow it would be a humongous information curve that i would have to acclimate to even understanding the general concepts like there's still a ton there that i would have to figure out and i would be very slow to act at first um whereas you know someone who's familiar with that could flip you know 50 trades a day without a problem just because of that wealth of knowledge. So even just having the tools, the, the the rough tools available to you doesn't mean that you've necessarily got the specific information needed to start making decisions right now. I don't know, just an interesting consideration. I mean, definitely. We, we just went through this actually with me and my partner because Alitza just in the last like year and a half has decided she wants to manage her own investments and want, because she wants to accelerate. She wants to own a home in a city where that's very expensive. So for her to put in her side of what that's going to require, the you know she's got to accelerate her investments. They can't just be five percent a year. She's got to do better. So she's been doing a ton of research to get up to speed and personally trading and talking to me and talking to other people, you know, in her her network that you know trade on their own accounts and has been doing you know pretty well. Uh, so far but it took time to get into a position where she was comfortable even pulling the trigger on something like the first time you ever buy stocks you don't have you just have no idea what you're doing i remember doing that mm-hmm. when i was like 22 or something and just being like does this make any sense ah whatever just press the button and not really having the context like one of the things i, I i've noticed and ha- i definitely had this conversation with the and i've had it with other people in the past is people not understanding that the cost of a share of a publicly traded stock is relative like they'll say something like, oh, that stock is way more expensive. It's 500 and this other one is $20, so I'll get the cheaper one. But they don't realize that you've got to divide, you got to look at the total cap market capitalization by factoring in how many shares have been issued. <laughs> if you have a con- company that has 17 billion shares at a dollar a piece versus a company that has two shares at $100 a piece, you're actually in very, very different frames of reference. Um, well, yeah, that's uh, what is that? Berkshire Hathaway is like a twenty thousand dollars stock or something like sure. that. Sure, but th- but there's a reason for it. Um, his preferred shares anywhere. Um, yeah. Uh, so anyway. Oh shoot! I was just gonna say something. Uh, crud! Oh, it was about the stock market. I saw after the Cyberpunk came out, uh, CD Projekt Red's stock dropped like twenty percent. And I was, and then I saw people like, "Oh, now is the time to buy a CD Projekt Red stock." And I'm like, "Is it? 
does their stock go up here? They released Cyberpunk already. Like, huge amount of sales already happened. Is this the time to buy their stock? Like, it seems it, like it was before they released the game, not after. I don't know for sure, but I kind of, like, double guessed it. But it's the type of thing that someone who knows this stuff would be able to make that call right away. And I'm like, I don't know. I'd have to, like, do a ton of research to figure out what I think about well, that. Well, I mean, that's, inter- that's an interesting point, though, because there's understanding micro-macro-economic factors that can affect stocks in general but then there's understanding the video game industry specifically and this is how you see somebody like a warren buffett who's a value investor has repeatedly looked at bitcoin and said this makes no fucking sense to me because this is an entirely new paradigm this doesn't work within my existing paradigm i'm steering clear of that whereas if you really understand the video game industry well and you understand finance in the stock market you might have the tools to evaluate the state that cd project red is in do they have other properties coming down the pipe that are likely to increase their profitability? Or are they really screwed because this game got pulled from the PlayStation Store? And that's what I would want to be looking at. You know, same thing as if, if you're looking at Hasbro and you think Magic had a good or a bad year, you're still only looking at a fraction of their overall revenue. So you don't. Yeah. I've, I've seen many times where people go, oh, buy Hasbro stock because they just announced some cool product for Magic. And it's like, Okay. <laughs> that's that's not all that's going on. You need you need to know how My Little Pony is doing. You need to know how their Star Wars retail sales are doing. You need to know about the Toys R Us closure, bankruptcy. You need to know a lot about what what makes Hasbro tick. How's Monopoly doing in in Europe and so forth. So there, there's a lot to be researched if you want to get that deep. One of the things that I like about Magic actually compared to the stock market, um, I actually think MGG Finance has fewer variables overall. Um, oh, yeah. especially if you're if you're an, if you're an experienced way. magic player um, because the macroeconomic factors have proven to be less important than they are for a lot of sh- stocks um, where you have to deal with the micro like how the company deal does uh, how, how well they are managed while also considering their position in their industry and how that industry is positioned versus the rest of the world um, so anyway that's, that's been a fairly long-winded thing I do have a couple things I want to get to before we wrap up here um, we asked the pro traders if they had notes for the end of the year earlier today and asked them to send oh. us either. Well, this is, I didn't see this, so this is exciting for so me. This is either <laughs> testimonials or criticisms. Um, and okay. I said I would read them out. Unfortunately, nobody really gave us any hard knocks. Uh, <laughs> Did you let them do it anonymously? They, they, they certainly, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they certainly could have um, if they wanted to. So, you know, maybe we can just retread for a second the the biggest accusations pointed at MTG Finance in general, um, and and touch on a couple of things quickly. If we go back to our conversation with Ellie of the Veil, the the major theme there was transparency, honesty, um, and you know teaching people how to fish as opposed to just giving them fish. So as opposed to just calling out a card to watch making sure that we provide detailed explanations as a niche, not just the two of us, um, to help players bridge the gap between I hate MTG finance and actually this stuff could make this game cheaper for me. So that's certainly on my mind heading into 2021. There's also the occasional accusations out of left field about talking our book or trying to make picks because we own stuff and all of that nonsense. 
mostly I think we've addressed this sufficiently in the past that I hope that for most of our listeners, they understand that that's just not really a thing. Um, But if I was talking my own book, do you think my ROI would have been 30%? (laughs) Well, more to the point, when you're as diversified as as we are like both i don't know what your exact value of your collection is but i know it's in the tens of thousands i know mine is in triple di- well into tri- triple digits and beyond um it doesn't like i don't care <laughs> i don't care enough about how any one card does to ever pursue a path of dishonesty related to it i don't care about getting a pick wrong i don't care about you know recommending scourge of the skyclaves at 40 and it goes down to 22 before going back up to 80 in 18 months. I'm never going to lie to obfuscate that when I know that the overall game plan is very solid. So I I would actually argue that the deeper somebody is into the industry, the less and and the bigger their holdings are, the less their ego is going to come into play. Now it does get, there are conflicts of interest. I, if if I have a competitor that has a really great product, I'm not going to talk that up. So that's going to become a blind spot if you only rely on me, which is why you should have a diversity of opinions. You should consume a diversity of content, and then you're going to get all the information you need. Um, but outside of those kind of scenarios, we're going to do our very best to try to make sure that you've got everything you guys need to succeed. You know, whether it is making the game cheaper or getting that side action going. Anyway, I I will shill a little bit with a couple of pieces of feedback that I thought were on point and posted in our testimonials channel in the Discord. Uh, This one is from Philum, uh, uh, one of our Discord members. Since I joined mid-July, I've bought and sold $10,000 sealed, opened up my buying opportunities in Europe and TCG through two friendly bounce prices partners, got into some very well-priced group buys. This is the most profitable and enjoyable monthly subscription fee I spend. Thanks for all the work you guys put into it, and here's to another great year. Happy holidays. Oh, sweet. From T. Scotty. I was a part of paid for my year of Pro Trader. The fourth group I, I was a part of could pay for over 10 years of Pro Trader. Not an exaggeration. He's talking about the Crucible of uh, War boxes from Flesh and Blood. I was going to say that was probably a Flesh and Blood post. <laughs> yeah. Um, going to be some good reviews from those guys. Yeah, and it, there was several others along similar lines. The, the bottom line is this. We're trying to build the friendliest, most informative best researched and most effective magic finance community you'll find anywhere. We work hard on it every day, our staff, our mods, and the the dedicated pro traders that show up to provide a constant stream of content. So if in 2021, you were looking to get it on the horse and get a little deeper into either magic or magic finance or running your own business, should definitely come check out pro trader. I agree. The uh, I, I have found time and time again uh, as an internet denizen that paid memberships tend to uh, be well worth their cost, if not necessarily uh, financially motivated like ours are, but uh, socially because it does a very good job of keeping the riffraff out um, or the people who are only interested in causing trouble. So. Yep. 
I've never paid for a service, a community, and been disappointed with it. And I think you'll find the same is true here at MTG Price. A lot of money on the table if you're willing to put the time into it. And there's it. other things like that, too. Like Star City Games Premium is worth it. Channel Fireballs is probably worth it. Just from the having access to competitive players analyzing formats side of things. Uh, and I think at Channel Fireball, you basically get credit back equal to what you're putting in store credit. So it's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, it's really good. Um, yeah, I still haven't eaten dinner yet, though. So Where can people find you online, Travis? <laughs> I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. And uh, how about you? Guys you can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well as via my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord and occasional articles for MTG Price. i also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com ProTrader service, as I've mentioned at least five times now in the last 10 minutes. For just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering single, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at Cool Stuff, Inc. to save 5% off your order and support this podcast, which brings us to the end of episode 252. Uh, our year-end review here, I think it was a, a good fifth year, although technically five years isn't up quite yet. Um, and hopefully 2021 brings similar profits and ideally slightly sunnier skies. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance, our first one of 2021, a year which I hope is better for everyone pretty much across the board. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you.